get busy living or get busy dying. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Welcome to this week's edition of Taboo Talk with Jay Louder. Today, we have a, a very special guest that has an amazing story. She's having a huge impact on a lot of people. She's written an incredible book, has another book coming out. And she and her boys have gone through something that a lot of people would not have expected in lieu of the, the calling and profession that her husband had. And man, just thank God for her and, and how she's being used. Kayla, welcome to today's podcast. Jay, thanks so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Well, I just love the fact that, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not going to say in some ways I, I do relate because obviously I have battled a similar struggle, but in other ways I don't relate because the pain that the, the difficulty that you've gone through is just unimaginable. And sadly, there are people all over the world that, that have that are or that will be going through some of the same things that you have gone through. And I've met them all over the world because of telling my own story. Um, it's a common denominator of something that, that I, I hear often. I'm sure that many of our listeners will be familiar with your name. Some of them, I'm sure, have read your book, which I'll be talking about later on in this podcast. But Kayla, if you would, rather than me giving you the lengthy introduction and, and telling your story, if you would... Just to kind of set the table for our listeners, would you kind of tell them a little bit just about you, about your family, and uh, and then we'll kind of move on from there. Sure. So I am a former pastor's wife. My husband, Andrew, led our church, Inland Hills Church, for almost four years. His dad had started the church when he was three years old, so he had grown up in it. He was a PK. He loved it. He felt called to ministry in college. We met and fell in love quickly in college. We're married super young. I was 21. He was 22. Started a family right away and jumped right into ministry. And it was a it was a rough go from the beginning. About a year into our marriage, his dad was diagnosed with leukemia, and it really rattled our church community and rattled our family. And my husband stepped up to the plate in a million different ways. And throughout the four-year journey of leukemia, he was eventually handed the baton of leadership and became the lead pastor of the church at a very young age. I think he was like 26 years old. And we were starting a family. We had two boys at the time and a third boy on the way. So life at home was full. Life at work was very full. And then just a few months later that year in 2015, in October of 2015, um, his dad passed away. And Andrew's heart was for the church. He loved the church so much. He felt compelled to lead them through his grief, through their grief. So he kind of pushed his grief to the wayside and returned just a few weeks later and preached an incredible series on heaven. And I just sat back in amazement of him. You know, my, my role was to support him and to love him and to care for our family. I was a stay-at-home mom caring for our three little boys. And I loved being a pastor's wife. Like my identity and my life was so wrapped up in who he was and supporting him and supporting our church in every way possible. And I loved my life. I had a beautiful, amazing, meaningful life. And then in the fall of, gosh, 2017, things started to shift. It had been a few years since his dad passed away, and 
Andrew just started to burn out, started with panic attacks. He was having panic attacks about two to three times a week, very debilitating, very scary. It would take over his entire body, mostly when he was trying to go to sleep. And at first, we thought it was a health issue. We thought maybe it was a thyroid issue. Maybe he could just get some medication. It would make the panic attacks go away. And so we were seeing doctors doing blood work, taking the next right steps. And the panic attacks continued to get worse. And they got so bad that he ended up in the hospital. And it was then that our church staff and our leadership team and our family kind of decided, you know, enough is enough. This guy was pushing through. He was still showing up on Sunday. Even when he had panic attacks just minutes before, he was showing up and preaching and present and trying to push through his pain. And we all decided enough is enough. He needs to take a break. And so we put him on a sabbatical in April of 2018. And He rested, and just a few weeks later, he was diagnosed with depression, and we finally had some of the answers we were looking for and why he was experiencing these panic attacks and why he had so much anxiety, and his body was just depleted. It had been a long journey of caring for his dad and watching his dad die and caring for the church and raising young family that he was just exhausted. But the doctors and the medical team that we had surrounding him was confident that he would bounce right back, that he was on the low end of the depression spectrum, that with rest and medication and therapy and time off work, he would just be back to himself in no time. And so We trusted that. We trusted their advice. Um, We trusted their plan, and we took it seriously. And so for the next three months, we did everything the doctors told us to do. He rested. He started a medical treatment plan. We took time together. We went on a road trip together, just the two of us, took time together at home. He read. He went and spent time with mentors. I mean, you name it. We We tried it. We were doing everything we knew to do to get him better. And by August, 2018, the doctors actually thought he was getting better and thought the next right step in his healing journey would be to go back to work. And so Andrew returned to work, hit the ground running, and gave two powerful weekend messages on mental health, talked about depression, gave out the suicide hotline number, gave out quotes from the NAMI website. Like he had done his research, he would have known where to go for help. And then headed into the third week, he just had a really awful day at the office. His mind wasn't fully healed. He had told our family and told our staff that he was at about 65% when he returned to ministry. And so he was hoping to ease back into ministry over time, which many of us that are in ministry or have been in ministry know that it's very difficult to ease into ministry. It's kind of a full-on thing. And so really awful day that really triggered a mental breakdown in Andrew. And it was bad enough where our family and our staff realized like, whoa, 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 maybe this guy shouldn't have gone back to work. Maybe he wasn't ready. Maybe he still needs some time to heal. And so the following day, while we were away from him for just a little bit of time, the unimaginable happened and he attempted suicide. And it was an absolute blindsided. I mean, the doctors were blindsided. Our family was blindsided. Our church was blindsided. Here's this young 30-year-old, healthy, incredible man living out his calling, doing the job of his dreams, amazing, supportive family, and suicide. I mean, it was just so unexpected and the worst day of my life. 
And so he was rushed to the hospital and we were given the gift of one last day to lay with him and hold him and pray over him and listen to his favorite worship songs with him and ultimately to say goodbye. And so on August 25th, 2018, he took his last breath. And with that, I took my first in this very brand new life that I never saw coming as a widow and single mom of three little boys who were two, four, and five years old. So it's been a journey that day. That's a really long description of how I got to where I am today, but it's been a journey. And so it's been about four years since he passed away. And my boys now are six, eight, and almost 10 years old. And we are living in a completely different life. I mean, it still takes my breath away some days that this is our life. This is the life that we're living. This is the life God's led us to. We really welcomed our pain, welcomed our grief, walked through the dark valley of grief. I mean, it was very dark, very scary. There were days where I didn't know I was going to survive, but I'm here. And it's been a lesson the last four years. It's been a, a giant lesson in learning to live with the pain. And God has done some incredible ministries through our story. I've written a book called Fear Gone Wild. I've been able to share a story on various platforms all over the U.S. And I wrote another book that's coming out this fall called Rebuild building beautiful that I really encapsulates that hope that there can be a beautiful life after loss that even though that beautiful life that I had with my husband died with him that hope that life can still be beautiful again and I'm still rebuilding that with my boys and so I'm really excited to share that message in just about a month well Kayla we talked even before the podcast just briefly for a couple of minutes and and I was saying that you know a lot of people have the assumption that those of us that are in ministry, that we have this kind of a Star Wars force field around us and that we don't have some of the struggles that everyday folks have that are not in ministry. And as we were talking, oftentimes those of us that are in ministry not only battle, but in some some cases, maybe even more so because of the fact that, that we are in ministry. And, you know, here your husband was 26-year-old. Obviously, he, he was a young pastor. And... Not that it, I mean, but he, he was a pastor too of a, a mega church. It's not like this was a small church. There was a lot of responsibility that came with his position. I, I believe that you'd said that it you was know, several thousand people that attended there every single week. One of the things I was curious about, Kayla, it, prior to the situation where your husband was facing burnout and started going through this season, had there been depression in his life ever before that? Or was this literally out of the blue? Yeah, Andrew, you know, ever since I met Andrew, I met him when he was probably 19 or 20 years old. And he's always had a bent towards anxiety. He's more, he was more serious, very focused, very driven. Um, so I wouldn't say that he had had experienced depression before, but he definitely just had a bent towards just being a more serious, melancholy type of person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that there were probably signs that I missed when his dad was sick. There were days where he didn't want to get out of bed. There were days when he would just stay in bed all day and he would call in sick to work and he wouldn't show up for work. And, you know, some of those moments where I was so busy with our boys, with raising a family, and I was also working at the church until we had our third boy. I was working in the children's ministry at the church, so I had a big responsibility, a big team that I oversaw. And and so I was busy, you know, doing my own thing that I didn't always notice, you know, some of those warm 
warning signs and some of those moments maybe I should have leaned into and really tried to see him and meet him in those moments. And Andrew really wanted to be this strong, capable man. And so I think he had a hard time showing vulnerability and showing weakness and opening up about how he was truly feeling. But I think there were some warning signs and maybe some red flags even before the panic attack started. Even, you know, not even taking enough time off to grieve. He should have taken six months off to grieve or even longer off to grieve before he went back to work after his dad passed away. So you know, I think oftentimes we're so focused on what's best for the church that we don't always put the pastor's best interest in mind or pastor's best interest or the pastor's family best interest at the top of the list. And we think, you know, they can just handle it or this is what's best for the church and we don't want to lose momentum. And if he's not there on Sunday, then people aren't going to show up. And we put so much pressure on this one person to, to lead this church, and it's a lot. You know, it's a lot riding on one person. I remember Andrew oftentimes calling himself the linchpin. He really felt like he was the person holding it all together. And I think it was just those four years of when his dad was sick, and he really, truly was the guy. You know, his dad was still speaking through his leukemia journey. We were filming him from the hospital. He would show up on Sunday after doing chemotherapy all week. I mean, his dad had modeled to him that you do not stop. <laughs> that you keep pushing through the pain, that you keep showing up, that you put the church first. And it really wasn't modeled to him to take time to rest and to take time off work and to put your own needs and the needs of your family before the needs of the church. Yeah, well, and so, no, there, and there's no doubt about that. I literally just left lunch with a close friend of mine where I'm preaching this Sunday here locally. And uh, we were talking about this very thing about most people just don't realize. And it's not a poor me. It's just the reality that the pressure in ministry is so, so incredibly high. And you talked about, you know, wanting to be strong and put up a good front. That's that's also a common denominator. And I think something that the enemy uses too to further isolate people. Although he may not have been open, Kayla, with other people, was was he open with you or, or was it wanting to shield you as well so that you wouldn't be worried about him? I think he wanted to shield me in some ways as well. And I think we were so young and so naive. You know, I didn't grow up in a pastor's family. I grew up attending church, but I had no idea everything that went on behind the scenes. And so um, super young, starting a family. I think there just wasn't space. There just wasn't an awareness of his need for any of us you know it's like it, we just we just thought you know Andrew is like this superhuman and he's just going to get the job done because he did and so there wasn't a lot of space there wasn't a lot of time where he was vulnerable where he opened up to me and I think I tried you know to to dig in with him and there were moments where I really tried to ask him questions and see him and acknowledge his pain and try to give him some space to talk about it but you know, Andrew was a very private person, very, very close, tight-knit circle of friends, maybe just one or two people that he let into his life. And so he had a very, very private life. And I think he really did have a, have a hard time with vulnerability. Yeah, well, and that's another thing for most people that are in ministry, especially it's when it's a high-profile position like he had at a mega church. People in ministry didn't do tend to put up a shield because they feel that they have to, in some ways, protect themselves. It's very easy for people to to find fault and criticism, and and because they are supposed to be this strong leader who is invincible, and 
So, you know, I think that's something that you see a lot as well. You mentioned that when he went back into full-time, back back to his position, that he was at, or I think you said he said that he was at about a 65% recovery rate. Looking back on that, I mean, was that something that you felt maybe that the professionals that were surrounding him, was that just ignorance on their behalf of, of not recognizing that? Or was that partially of him thinking that, okay, I'm, I'm at 65%, but that's good enough? I mean, what's your thought on that? I think, you know, I was I was concerned when he decided that it was time and the doctors decided it was time for him to go back to work. You know, I, I was concerned and I was worried, you know, about him, about his mental health and his mental state and worried that he wasn't fully healed or fully ready and, I just know Andrew and I knew that he wanted to go back. There were other, there was other motivation besides, you know, just doing the next right steps for healing. I think he knew that it was August and people are going back to school and it's when their momentum picks up for the church and people are, you know, going back to church on Sunday, they're done with their summer vacations. And so I think he didn't want to miss the moment. I think he didn't want to miss the momentum. And so I think he pushed himself to go back to work before he was even ready. And I think he so badly wanted to be well. He so badly just wanted the whole nightmare of mental health and depression to be over and wanted to be back to himself. And I get that. I totally understand that. But I wish that he would have given himself more grace. Yeah, well, and there is, especially at that time of the year, for those of us in ministry, I mean, it is like, as you say, everybody comes back and and there's these vice grips that are inherent with being in ministry where not only is there is is there this ongoing pressure, but there's these huge expectations. And uh, the truth of the matter is, is no man is the head of the church. It's God's the head of the church. But yet, there's this expectation that is put on people in leadership positions that you are the head of the church and you have these obligations and responsibilities. And if you're not sailing the ship, the ship's going to sink. And uh, another thing I wondered, Kayla, is. When people go through tragedy, and, and to, to really even to say tragedy, this is an understatement, especially for you know a, a mother who's a, a stay-at-home mom and trying to raise three boys, and and something as tragic as this happens. And because of my own story and and having spoken about this all over the world, I find some people, and and I certainly don't blame them in, in any way, but they go to a season of, of blaming God, you know, that God is responsible. I was just wondering, is, is that something that you've struggled with? You know, I, I mostly struggled with that when Andrew was sick. I really struggled with God. Why, why are you allowing this to happen? We just went through four years of his dad battling leukemia, of a really hard, unpredictable life. You know, there would be weekends where we expected I expected Andrew to be home and spending time with our family and he would get a call on Friday night that his dad couldn't preach on Sunday and so he'd have to work you know get to work right then and and come up with a message for Sunday and so we had been living with that like that for four years and so I'm like God why are you allowing this to happen after the four-year journey after his dad passed away after this epic weekend where he became the lead pastor and like we're supposed to be headed into a new good season why are you allowing this to happen again it felt like and so it really felt you know in that season when Andrew was sick like a desert season it felt like we were in this wilderness season of where are you God why are you allowing this to happen and it really felt like God was silent I remember walking around my house 
Andrew was in the bedroom a lot of the time. He was resting and spending time in our bedroom. And so I was really pretty much a single mom that summer and trying to take care of our three boys and trying to keep them away from the bedroom so that their dad could rest because being in an environment with three little boys isn't the most restful environment. And so I was excited to try to create that space for him. But I remember walking around my house and crying and saying out loud, like, this is the summer from hell. So I was really struggling. I was really struggling with where are you, God, and why are you allowing this to happen? And as much as I believe that Andrew's mental health was a chemical imbalance happening in his brain, that it was a result of adrenal burnout and just burnout in general, there was still spiritual component to it that was very real and very scary and so that to me was also very frustrating my husband was terrified and he um, saw things and had some scary encounters with things that he saw I talk about it in my book if you're gone wild there's a whole chapter called stranger things where I describe these encounters that he had and one of them was in our bedroom and he saw you know, it's going to sound so weird to some people listening to this, but he saw like five creatures and they all had different names. And they were all saying different things to, the, to him and they were all, the names were like anxiety and depression and, and success and failure. And he was terrified. I mean, I walked into our, my bedroom and he's got a sheet over his head and he's shaking and crying and terrified. And so it was then too, like, God, what else can I do? I'm praying. I have people over at our house. They're anointing him with oil. They're anointing every room of our home with oil. They're praying for our family. We have thousands of people praying for our family. Why are you allowing this to happen? Why are you allowing him to be terrified? Why aren't you fixing this? And then ultimately he dies. And then it's like, really? Like, God, what the heck? So it's been a wrestle. You know, it's been a wrestle with God. And oftentimes I think about the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's having that moment where he's on his knees and he's begging God for a different way. It's like, God, why are you allowing this to happen? God, is there any other way? Like, does it have to go down like this? Do I have to die like this? Like, does this, is this the way things have to be? And ultimately he surrenders and he's like, not my will, but your will be done. And so after Andrew passed away, it was like that surrender of like, okay, God, I can't change my circumstance. Ultimately, you allowed this to happen. Ultimately, I don't believe this was plan A for Andrew's life, but ultimately, you know, God allowed this to happen. And so what now, God? Okay, surrender my plans to you. Everything I thought about what my life would be is washed away with Andrew's death. So what is my life going to be now? And what I found on the other side of death, on the other side of was that God is everywhere. I mean, it was a while to go from this desert season of where are you, God, and why aren't you fixing this to the worst thing imaginable happening to literally feeling like God is everywhere. There was miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And that verse that the Lord comforts the brokenhearted or, or the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and comforts those who are crushed in spirit is just so true. I mean, God was so, so close. And I, I had coffee dates with friends where I was sharing with them the things that he was doing in our life. And they were weeping with me. And they said out loud, they have never seen the hand of God like they've seen the hand of God in my grief. Little tiny miracle. Like the, I'll give you an example. Right after my husband passed away, I waited a week to tell my kids. And when I did sit them down and tell them right after that, I sat and I, I colored in this coloring book with my uh, five-year-old. 
And in the coloring book, it had the description. It was describing grief and death through the life cycle of caterpillars. And so we were sitting there, and we were drawing together, and we were talking about caterpillars and cocoons and butterflies. And then it was nap time. So we put the book away, and I went to close the curtains in our living room. And right where I put my hand on the curtain was a little tiny green caterpillar. And I, I don't touch bugs, but I pulled the caterpillar off the curtain and I ran and showed my five-year-old son, Smith. And I said, look, it's a caterpillar. And Smith, without skipping a beat, said, it's a miracle from God. So he gave us little tiny miracles that my boys could see that were tangible, that they could notice. And then huge, huge miracles for me, you know, and for our family and provision for our family in huge ways, you know, huge financial blessing for our family. Because Andrew died by suicide, there was no life insurance. He had opted out of Social Security. So we were not in a good place financially. And God just provided above and beyond that way too and people he gave people a heart to give to our family and so there were huge huge miracles tiny little miracles went from where are you God to oh my gosh God you are covering all of our needs you are so close you are so good you are everywhere I will never understand why you allowed this to happen but I trust you wow well obviously there was a a huge struggle and that would to be expected but it sounds like Kayla that it really wasn't, you didn't go through that season of really blaming God, questioning God, of course, but but not really blaming him for what happened. I, it sounds as though you recognize that, that it wasn't God's fault. Am, am I correct in that? Yes, I truly believe, you know, when suicide happens, suicide is such a different kind of death. And when suicide happens, it's easy to point the finger at anybody and everybody. You can point the finger at the spouse. You can point the finger at the family. You can point the finger at the circumstance. You can point the finger at the medication or at the doctors or at God or whatever. And for me, you know, I see Andrew's death as a horrible, tragic accident. And I don't blame anybody. I describe Andrew's death um, like a child drowning in a swimming pool at a birthday party. I mean, he was surrounded by people that loved him. And we all just missed it. We all just had no idea how bad his depression really was. And I truly believe that Andrew didn't even know how bad his depression really was. And his psychiatrist, after he died, said something to me that was really helpful. He said that 90% of suicides are impulsive. It's this in-the-moment, overwhelming flood of pain that many of us aren't capable of understanding unless we've been there, unless we've had an attempt, unless many of us are just incapable of understanding. And so I truly believe that the suicide isn't anybody's fault. It's not Andrew's fault. It's not God's fault. It's not my fault. It's not the doctor's fault. It's not anybody's fault. Nobody is to blame. It's a horrific tragedy. And trying to put blame on anything or anybody is just super unhelpful. Kayla, when I was struggling with suicidal tendencies, there were people around me that knew I had issues. But even those that were closest to me, albeit a very limited circle, really had no recognition of how dark the darkness was and and how much I was suffocating. And part of that was Similar to your husband, I, I I didn't want people to know. I wanted people to think, you know, I'm a man and I can handle this and I'm strong and yada yada. But but people didn't really didn't know. And matter of fact, even a friend of mine years later wanted to meet with me and and I was telling him about some struggles he was having. And anyway, he later went home and, and hung himself and his his kids found him. 
and I carried a lot of guilt of going, Jay, if anybody should have recognized the signs, it should have been you. I mean, you've, you've dealt with this in your own personal life and, and how did you miss it? And, and so I carried, I felt like I carried some responsibility that I didn't see the signs you talked about, and, it, and it's always easy as the old saying goes, hindsight is twenty twenty. meaning yeah. you can, you can look behind you and go, how did I miss that? And Oh, now this all makes sense. And you talked about after your husband had ended his life that you, 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 you did see some of the signs that weren't so visible. You know, it's, it's kind of like your analogy of a, a kid in a swimming pool drowning. I think for a lot of people, it's, the people that are surrounding, and from my perspective, it's like they're blind. It's not that they don't care. It's not like they wouldn't help. It's not like they don't want to help. It's that proverbial, yeah, I'm in the pool drowning, but all the people around me, they, they can't hear me and they can't see me. And so I wondered when you looked back and saw, okay, gosh, now I, I, I see this and I see that. Did you carry a sense of guilt of, why didn't mm-hmm. I recognize this? And it, well, if I would have, if I would have seen this as clearly as I do now, well, then I could have done this and that. Did did you walk down that dark path of feeling guilt and wondering, blaming yourself for why you didn't see it when when it was so obvious in hindsight? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think anybody that deeply loved Andrew would have done anything that they that they could have to save him. And so after he passed away, there were months where my mind would literally try to save him. My mind would come up with every possible scenario and it would replay over and over and over and over, just trying to make sense of the trauma, just trying to make sense of what happened. My mind had no category for it. And so it would just replay over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And so I did struggle for a while um, with regret and with thinking back and wondering what I'd missed. And as I did look back, you know, there was a moment where Andrew tried to tell me. We were sitting at the kitchen counter. It was after the kids had gone to sleep. And like I said, like it was a summer from hell for me. And so I was exhausted. I was depleted. I was getting burnt out. Andrew's therapist had shared with me that I was co-burdening his depression. So I was carrying his depression with him. So I was getting just a taste of his depression with him. And so I was exhausted and I'm trying to explain to him, you know, I'm exhausted and like, I, I feel like I need more support and I'm like venting to him. And his response to me is that he's venting to me about his own pain too. And he tells me that he was up in the middle of the night, the night before, and he had his staff organization charts spread all over the kitchen counter and he thought about killing himself. And I reacted out of my own emotion, out of my own exhaustion. I couldn't even hear or see what he was trying to say. And so I reacted out of my own emotion. I said, Andrew, that's the most selfish thing you could ever do. You would never do that to me and the boys. Just totally offended. Like, I can't believe you even said that. And I just totally dismissed it. And Andrew, I'll never forget, Andrew looked at me and said, Kayla, that's not what you You need to do Mm. some research and come up with something better to say. And he was right. You know, that's not what you say. I know now that's not what you say to someone that's struggling with suicidal ideation, with someone that's trying to let you in on the darkest struggle of their minds. Like, that is not what you say to someone that's trying to be vulnerable and they're trying to, to raise their hand and reach out for help. You don't just dismiss them. And so I wish, you know, looking back, I wish I would have been able to pause in that moment to realize, to take my ego off the table and realize that moment wasn't about me. 
and to have the ability to pause for that moment and respond instead of react. When someone tells you that they're struggling with suicidal thoughts, it's time to lean in. It's time to ask questions, questions like, do you have a suicide plan? What problem are you trying to solve through suicide? How far have you researched it? How often are you thinking about it? It's time to pick up the phone and call the suicide hotline. I wish I would have done that. I didn't even know that what existed, you know, until he gave that message and talked about it and gave out the suicide hotline number from the stage. I wish I would have included other people. I wish I would have I wish I would have gone to his psychiatrist or called his psychiatrist the next day and said, Hey, my husband said this to me, I'm concerned. I wish I would have told our therapist, Hey, my husband said this to me, I'm concerned. I wish I would have invited other family members that were walking the mental health journey with us into the conversation, but I didn't tell anybody and I never brought it up again. And I think I did a total disservice to Andrew because I just, I truly didn't understand. And so, you know, looking back, I know that I did the best that I could given the circumstance that I was in. And there's so much grace for that. But I, it's, I'm so grateful that I'm able to share that now, hopefully for other people to not miss that moment. If someone's trying to tell you that they're struggling with suicidal thoughts, like do not miss that moment. Do not miss that opportunity. It might be the one and only opportunity that to see into, to be invited into that dark space of their mind. And so I wish I would have asked about it every day too. I wish I would have been comfortable. You know, I think the word suicide scared me. I think I, was, I think I was not comfortable even saying the word suicide out loud. And now I talk about it all the time. Um, but then I just was not comfortable with that word. I really, truly believed it would never have that. I wish I would have asked him every single day. Are you suicidal today? How are your suicidal thoughts going? Have you been thinking about suicide? I wish I just would have been able to see him and see how bad it really was. I just totally dismissed it and thought it would never happen. And it did. Well, I'm really glad that you answered that question the way you did, because there may be people who will listen to this podcast who recently or may in the future have someone that, that makes a statement similar to what your husband made to you. And maybe out of just a response or maybe out of trying to in some way awaken them out of darkness to say, you know, hey, this is a selfish thing. And, and I, I love your answer, you know, and that continue to ask them to encourage them if they're not getting therapy to get therapy to surround themselves with other people to not react but yet take an action by and and you gave so many helpful things about what what people can do in in that scenario that you wish you would have said just last week I was in Colorado on vacation and there's a guy that lives up in the north who has traveled with our ministry on occasion and and out of the blue, text me, and I, I know that he's going through a divorce, and texted me and said, hey, does God forgive people that commit suicide? And I was on vacation, mm-hmm. and so I normally, I mean, it was just me and my wife. It was the first time just the two of us have been on vacation, and I don't, I can't even remember when with no kids. And so I really tried to stay disconnected from ministry or phone calls or emails or texts the best I could. And we were about to go on a hike, but I knew that when I got the text that although he was trying to camouflage it where it sounded as though he was just asking a random question, I knew that what he was trying to find out was if he ended his life, would God send him to hell? Which, number one, I don't believe that, but he didn't know. So I immediately immediately called him. And, And some of the things that you said, you know, I asked him if he was going to therapy, and he said, yes, he was. And I said, 
does your therapist know you're suicidal? And he said, no. And I asked him to make a commitment that he would call his therapist. You know, here I'm in Colorado and I won't say what state he's in, but a long way from where I'm at and made him promise that he would not, that he would contact his therapist and let his therapist know. I did tell him that I was on vacation, but even though I was on vacation that, you know, I, I'm, I'm here for him and that while I am accessible, even though I'm on vacation, that He needs to have other people that he tells this to that can also reach out to him. So I think those are are really important steps that people can take. Like you said, even the the suicide hotline asking, do you have a plan? Which I think is another great question because it kind of gives you an idea of how, how in depth they've thought about this. How serious are they? I mean, have they actually got to a place where in his case, matter of fact, it's ironic that we're talking about it because I got a text message from him yesterday. And he said that he had already made a recording for his boys and had put put them in a Dropbox and left a note for his family that when they found him, that he had made recordings for his boys to let his boys know how much he loved him. So yeah, I I love your, your, your answer. And I love the action items that, that you listed out. But I do want to ask you this, kind of in this same, on this same racetrack here, you talked about this guilt that you had and how you wished you would have responded at that moment of weakness where he was trying to, in his own way, he was reaching out for help. He, he was trying to tell you how deeply he was hurting. And, and you did talk about, you know, the guilt and how you relive that and wish you would have responded differently. But I think there may be people listening to this podcast that go, yeah, well, that's where I'm at now. And I'm still carrying the guilt. How, how did you actually move past that guilt of self-blame where I shouldn't have said this, I shouldn't have made it about me, I should have taken these other action steps that I now know to take? How did you get past that guilt that some people are still carrying, Kayla? Yeah, I think it's really important to view suicide differently, to look at suicide through a completely different lens. I think so often you know, our culture and the way the words that we choose to describe suicide are words like committed suicide or killed themselves. And when you say words like that, you're putting blame on the person that died. And so, you know, it's so important for me to change that language. And I had that shift right away where someone had explained to me that instead of saying committed suicide or killed themselves, you say died by suicide. And even that small shift in language totally takes the blame off of everybody. It takes the blame off of the person who died. It takes the blame off the loved ones. It takes the blame off the medical team. You know, they died by suicide. Mental mental illness is a real illness, just as real as any other illness. Mental illness is a deadly illness, just as deadly as any other illness. And mental illness often is an invisible illness. So it's even more dangerous, you know, than any other illness. And so I think choosing to to see the suicide um, through empathetic eyes, you know, through seeing that um, Andrew truly was really sick and the doctors and our family and people that loved him the most just were totally unaware of how sick he truly was. And the suicide isn't anybody's fault. It's not Andrew's fault. It's not mine. Truly is a tragedy and nobody is to blame. And so even when we were, were discussing it and talking about it in therapy or talking about it with friends, you know, I never talk about it in a way where I feel guilt or where I'm putting guilt on Andrew. And I think not only is that a gift to me in my own healing journey, because there's no bitterness 
and there's no blame. I, I really, truly have grace, extended grace towards Andrew and extended grace towards the team of doctors and extended grace towards myself. Um, I think that's the, 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 the biggest gift that we can give ourselves is to extend grace to everybody, even to ourselves. Right. And just change it's, your perspective of, I love what you said about changing your perspective. But in all honesty, Kayla, a lot of people tell me that they still feel anger at a loved one. Do you have seasons of feeling anger at him or have you completely been able to walk away from that? I truly don't. And I can honestly say that, you know, there are moments where I'm like, gosh, I wish you were here. You know, obviously like every single day I wish he was here and my boys are growing up without a dad. And so I have the tangible reality of raising three boys as a single woman on my own. And so there are moments every single day where it's just like this ache and this, uh, you know, in the deep of my gut where I'm like, man, I wish you were here. But anger, no. You know, I think at the beginning in that first year or two, there may have been some anger that I worked through, but I've, I truly just have been able to get to a place where I can see the suicide as a tragedy, where I can see the suicide. You know, there was a description, I think Ann Voskamp had written a description in one of her blogs about suicide and described it as being trapped in a burning building. And the only way to escape the flames is to jump out the window. And so, you know, Andrew was experiencing overwhelming pain, pain that I am totally, you know, I'm more familiar with now that I've walked through grief, but pain that I truly will never be able to understand. And in that moment of desperation, he felt like the only way, the only escape was to jump out the window. And so, you know, I think just living in that reality and and seeing the suicide um, through that perspective and that this truly isn't something that in Andrew's healthy right mind, this isn't something he would have ever chosen. I think he is just as surprised by the suicide that the rest of us are. And so, yeah, I've really, I've really been able to reconcile those feelings. And I think inviting God into my journey and surrendering a lot of that to him. And I journal a lot. I went to therapy every single week for an hour for the first two years of my grief. I still go to therapy like once every three months. Now I see my therapist because I am doing better and I'm in a much better place, but I still think it's really important. And through, through being in community, you know, through inviting people into my pain, through inviting people into my anger, through inviting people into my guilt, through inviting people into some of those raw, vulnerable spaces and emotions. I've, I have friends that have just held me. They haven't tried to show it up with an agenda. They haven't tried to show up with all the right things to say. They've, they've just sat and wept with me and held me and said, I'm so sorry. And that was enough. Their presence was enough. And so I think inviting, doing life with community, surrendering my grief and my pain and my questions to God and truly um, facing my trauma head on and going to therapy and welcoming the pain and going right through the pain and learning to live with it. You know, pain isn't something you get over or you move past pain is something that you invite into your life. And so learning to welcome it and invite it and see what it has to teach me. And there have been so many lessons in my grief that I would have never learned had I not gone through this experience. And so pain has been one of the greatest teachers of my life. And as much as I hate what happened to me, I am so grateful for the lessons that I've learned through it. And I love the fact, Kayla, that you're giving people tools. I don't even know if you recognize, I don't even think you're doing it intentional. But, I mean, you just 
even in dealing with grief, you just gave people, I don't want to say an outline because there is no specific outline, but you're doing the exact opposite, you know, of what your husband knew to do. In your pain, you're doing what people who are suicidal or who are considering uh, or have suicidal tendencies, you're doing the exact opposite. You're letting people in. You're surrounding yourself with people who love you, who allow you to be real and transparent and authentic about your pain, about whether whether it was anger, whether it was guilt, whether whatever it was. And that's a solution not only for people who are contemplating suicide is allowing people in because they tend to isolate themselves, but it's also a recipe for people who are on the other side, like yourself, where you allow people to, to, to walk into your world and to invade your world. And of course, it's got to be the right people. It's got to be people who, as you said, don't come with an agenda and they come with a listening ear. They come out of love. They come out of compassion. They come out of a, 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 a an endeavor to understand. And so even though I don't even know if you're aware of it, you're really giving some great tools for somebody that may be listening today that maybe they they feel guilt or, or they're still going through that process. Maybe they're angry at God or blaming God or blaming a loved one who took their life. What you're doing and what you have done, you know, you even mentioned therapy and, and these are things that are very viable assets and resources and tools to, to help people deal with this. You know, one of the things that today are really a couple of things that I wanted to discuss that really you've said without us even having to discuss them. I, I want to talk about, you know, removing the shame and stigma that's associated with mental health. And it never even really even came out as a topic because you talked about having a different mindset, a, a different perspective on that. I wanted to talk about you know, recognizing suicidal tendencies as a medical situation, and not always. Sometimes it is a spiritual issue, no doubt, and I do believe the forces of darkness. We know that the scripture says in John eight forty four that Satan has come to, he's a murderer. Matter of fact, it says he was a murderer from the beginning. So I'm not saying that there aren't, I do believe that's a part of the puzzle, that it can be a spiritual issue, but it also is a medical condition. And so I just love how, you know, you, you've hit on so many different topics that I wanted to, to dive into you've addressed with maybe, like I say, not even knowing that, that, that you were addressing them. One of the things I, I wanted to ask you as a person who has been in ministry in a mega way, in a mega church, why mm-hmm. do you think, Kayla, that suicide and mental health and depression are not more openly discussed? I, I have my opinions about this, but I'd be curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, I think ultimately, and I think it's getting a lot better. I've seen improvement in the conversation and people being willing and being brave enough to have conversations about mental health and depression. Since Andrew died, I feel like it's it kind of, since Andrew died, and there's been another, you know, big uh, pastor that died, there's been several pastors that have died from suicide. I think it's really cracked open the conversation where churches have realized like this is something we need to talk about. And so I am so grateful for that. I want to acknowledge that. But I think, I think there still is a stigma. You know, I think there still is this stigma that if you have enough faith, that you believe that if you believe in God, that right hard, yep. that you'll never struggle with depression, that you should never struggle with suicidal thoughts, that you'll never struggle with mental illness. And if you're just close enough to God and you're you're uh, praying every day and you're in the word and you're doing all these things, which yes, like do those things, you know, be in community, be in the word, chase after God. Do life with the Holy Spirit. Like, yes, yes, please do all those things. I think those things will improve your mental health. But it's not just a a spiritual thing. You know, we're not just spiritual beings. We're also like have physical bodies that get sick. 
And so mental illness is a real physical illness, just like any other physical illness. And so I think it should be treated with the same empathy and compassion and tender care and love like any other illness. And I think that's where the church sometimes misses the mark. Oh, I totally agree. And I've heard people say that so many times, as you stated, you know, you need to pray harder. You need to have bigger faith. And what's ironic, people who say that about mental health issues wouldn't say that about the flu. Nobody would say, well, if you would have prayed harder, if you would have went to church more often, if you'd have read your Bible, you'd have never got the flu. No, people recognize that part of being a human being is, is you're susceptible to illness or to sickness. But for some reason, when it comes to mental health, well, that's a different issue where people think, oh, no, no, no. If if you're walking with God, that you're isolated from that. And it's not true. Mm Mm-hmm. Kayla, as we you know, kind of bring this thing to a close, and, and I, there are people who listen to our podcast that are believers. There will be people, people that listen to this that are ministry leaders, lay leaders, people that are from all walks of life. And there will be people that will listen to this podcast that, that don't have a relationship to Christ. And, you know, of course, our goal here, we're not trying to harpoon anybody or spear anybody, but we do want people to know that ultimately, as people who are followers of Christ, our ultimate hope is in Him, in Him and nothing less. Not in not in religion, not in denomination, not in any good works, but our, our hope is in the fact that God's Son gave His life. He was executed on Dead Man's Hill 2,000 years ago. Not so we could be isolated from all problems and difficulties, but so we could have relationship. Not religion, but relationship. And as we kind of bring this thing to a close, Kayla, obviously I know you love Jesus and, and, and you're a believer. What would you say to somebody who is listening to this podcast and and they're not a believer? What words would you have for them today? Hmm. I would say you're missing out. If you, you're not doing life with God and you're not doing life with the Holy Spirit, that you're missing out on the joy, on the peace, on the love. Um, you're missing out on one of the greatest mysteries of life. And I know that I couldn't have survived what I've survived the last four years without God, without my faith, without doing life with Him. And so I just encourage you to, to seek after what that is in your life, what that looks like for your life. Get curious, to ask questions, to pick up a book, maybe pick up a devotional. Maybe someone's gifted you a book and it's been collecting dust on your bookshelf and maybe it's time to crack it open and just get a little curious about what, who is this Jesus guy and what does it mean to live life with him, to walk with him, to follow the way of Jesus? Like, what does that mean? What does that look like? What does it look like to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit? And I always encourage you to ask questions, to get in community, to find a local church. And, and honestly, I think it does start with curiosity, with just showing up on a Sunday and just checking it out. And if you don't like it, go check out the one around the corner, because chances are there probably is another one around the corner. And that, you know, when you when we do life with God, it's truly the best life. And that doesn't mean that it's exempt from hardship. That doesn't mean that awful, terrible, horrible things won't happen because they will. But what it does mean is that he will sustain us through that. And he will give us the grace and the mercy and the strength and the peace and the joy, all supernatural, all from him. Um, And he will sustain us through some of our hardest, most horrific days. And I wouldn't have wanted to walk through my hardest and most horrific days without him. Man, Kayla, that that's such an awesome answer. And even as you were talking, I was thinking 
there may be people that go, you know, I've tried this, I've tried that, and and nothing has brought the hope, nothing has brought the healing. I'm still, I'm, I'm suffocating, I'm stuck in the quicksand of life, and maybe it's not suicide, maybe it's a marital issue, maybe it's a health issue, maybe it's a financial issue, maybe it's a career issue, I, I don't know. And I think about the story about the, the lady, in her case, it was a medical issue. And she'd spent all the money that she had. She went to the doctors. She'd seen the best that she could afford. And matter of fact, according to the story in the Bible, her situation not only didn't get better, but it got worse. But God even utilized her pain, her suffering, as a tool to help her recognize that she couldn't do it on her own, that she couldn't part part, part the sea on her own, that she couldn't, that, that she needed help. And because of that, she was able to come to Christ and not only was she healed, but her life was instantaneously changed. And now here it is 2,000 years later, and and people are still talking about her as I am right now. So maybe even for someone that's listening that goes, yeah, you know, that sounds good, but I don't know if that works for me. I, nothing else has worked. Well, just maybe, just maybe God has allowed you, and I didn't say cause, but maybe God has allowed you to come to the place where you are so that you could recognize that he is not a answer, but he's the only answer. And that knowing him and beginning a relationship with him is just as simple as your willingness to call out to him and to invite him in your life and surrender to him. It's not a matter just of words, but a matter of saying, Jesus, I need you. I want you in my life. And obviously, what he can do is so obvious, Kayla, through your life. I'm so grateful today to have you on the podcast, your story is truly, I mean, honestly, it's phenomenal. I have so much respect for you, even though you and I have never met face-to-face. I have so much respect for how you've handled the situation, for what you're going through, and I have so much respect for how you're using your pain as a platform to help other people. And I know ultimately that that's what God would have you to do. He would have you to take what you've been through to help rescue others. I want you to know, and I mean it, I really mean it with the depth of my heart, that I'm going to be praying for you and for what it's worth and and for your three boys. I know God has great things ahead for you. I want our listeners to have the ability to connect with you. I mentioned earlier, you've got a book called Fear Gone Wild. You've got another book coming out, Rebuilding Beautiful. Kayla, how can people reach out to you and get a copy of your first book and, and your upcoming book? Remind them. Yeah, the best place to connect with me is on social media. I'm on Instagram. My Instagram handle is Kayla Steck. Uh, my website is kaylasteckline.com. Uh, both the books are available on Amazon. Um, I know that the new book uh, will also be available, you know, local bookstores too. So those are the best places. And Kayla, on on Instagram, is it is it Kayla, your full last name? No, it's just Steck, S. T E C K S T. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to, I'm going to start. I'm, I'm literally on my phone at this minute because <laughs> I want to start following you myself. Tell me, tell me again, our listeners, I, I couldn't hear you clearly. It's K A Y L A. What spell it S- for us. S T E C K. Awesome. Kayla, thank you so much today for, um, for taking your time to be on this podcast. And thank you for, for what you're doing for the kingdom. Much respect to you and, and just know that God's going to continue to do great things in your life. Thank you so much. Thank you.